You're listening to Alumni Allowed, a new podcast by Graduate Center students for Graduate Center students. In each episode, we talk with a GC graduate about their career and the advice they would give current students. This series is sponsored by the Office of Career Planning and Professional Development at the Graduate Center. I'm Anders Wallace, a PhD candidate in the Anthropology program at the Graduate Center. In this episode, I speak with Jay Blair, who is Assistant Professor in Geography and Anthropology at California State Polytechnic University in Pomona. Jay earned his PhD in the Anthropology program at the GC. He took a Mellon ACLS Public Fellowship with the American Council for Learned Societies before joining Cal Poly Pomona on the tenure track. His ACLS fellowship placed him with an environmental advocacy nonprofit organization, the Natural Resources Defense Council. In this episode, Jay talks about the pros and cons of applying his research skills in a nonprofit, how to tell your professional story in ways that let you bridge academic research and advocacy work, and why the constraints of an unpredictable academic job market might actually push you to rediscover passions and skills you might have sidelined during your PhD. Can you say what your name is and what do you do for a living? My name is James or Jay Blair, and uh, currently I'm in a tenure track job as an assistant professor in the Department of Geography and Anthropology at Cal Poly Pomona, so California State Polytechnic University Pomona. There were two searches when I applied for this job. One of them was for a cultural anthropologist. The other was for an applied anthropologist. The CUNY Grad Center happens to have a strong geography training built into it. So it was a good fit for me, but I last year was in more of an applied advocacy position outside of academia. And so I actually chose to apply for the applied anthropology position, even though I could have been eligible for probably either of those. So can you tell me broadly a bit more about your academic background and what got you interested in anthropology? I had never taken a course in anthropology before grad school. I was a history and philosophy double major in college as an undergraduate and a Latin American studies minor. And for the first few years after college, I had a non-academic job working for an environmental nonprofit called Sierra Club. I was their land agency coordinator. So I was their liaison for national parks and national forests. But there wasn't a lot of room for moving into the direct kind of advocacy work that I wanted to do there. So I applied for PhD programs to do something that was a little bit more outside the box, more stimulating. And I just really liked the the faculty at the grad center and the students also, when I went and visited the anthropology program, I really connected with the kind of political commitment that a lot of the students had. And so I just went straight from scratch, basically, at the grad center in anthropology. And for my dissertation research, I ended up building on some previous work I was doing in Argentina, which... I had been doing basically an independent project on these uh, cooperative factories that were forming fair trade commodity chains after the economic crisis in 2001 in Argentina. But I went down there with a, a grant in 2012 to do some kind of preliminary research. And I found that actually a lot of people had already been doing research on that topic. And I don't know, it just didn't have a lot of teeth for a dissertation. It also happened to be the 30th year anniversary of the Falklands or the Malvinas War. And I hadn't really researched that war very much. A lot of people have written about it. 
Um, these are these islands that are sort of near the tip of South America, kind of a gateway to Antarctica. And I got to know the literature a little bit about it. I started to get more intrigued because it was just everywhere I could look, you know, because of the anniversary. And I ended up totally switching my topic. What really intrigued me was that there was no historical evidence of a pre-colonial indigenous population in these islands. So from an anthropological perspective, I was interested in how the settlers, who are primarily British descendant and voted 99.8% in favor of remaining British in 2013 in a referendum on self-determination, I was interested in how, um, with that claim of self-determination, they were constructing themselves as natives through new forms of governance over energy and the environment, and in particular, preparation for offshore oil. Did you see yourself becoming a professor when you switched tracks and joined the PhD program? I, I know it's not the case with everybody, but like a lot of us, you feel as though that's uh, the kind of expected first path. But having worked in the environmental NGO context previously, I knew that that was always something that I could do and I could grow up from. And the funny thing about it is, even though that project might sound appealing as though it has teeth, et cetera, and that earned me all these grants for, you know, mm -hmm. external grants for research. But once I actually tried to get on the academic job market, what I found was that there is no search committee in any anthropology department that is looking to hire someone who studies up with British settlers in the South Atlantic. You know, <laughs> you know they want to replace their Africanist or their scholar of Amazonians. And there, there are these, you know, gaps that occur basically only when these older school anthropologists are retiring and, you know, they, they don't really appreciate necessarily kind of innovative pushing the envelope approach the same way a grant committee would, you know? So I had to really think creatively. It's not to say I didn't have any success. I, I was having interviews for jobs in academia and, you know, I got an article published toward the end of my dissertation. So it's not as though it was hopeless. So, so what I did after the PhD is I was a, uh, a sub lecturer or, you know, visiting assistant professor at Brooklyn College mm -hmm. for a year, which was, uh, Really good opportunity. I had great colleagues and support there. It was also really intense. I mean, I was teaching five courses per semester. So it was a big teaching load and it made it very difficult for me to continue to do the research I wanted to do. And so I was then left with a, a new opportunity. I basically had a choice. I was offered another visiting assistant professor job, which, you know, would have been a great opportunity, but it was only one year uh, non-renewable. And so I would have been right back on the academic job market right away, you know, once I started there and having moved, would have to move to a new city. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to apply for something that's non-academic and see how it goes. And it still give me a foot in the, in academia. And that was this Mellon ACLS public fellowship. For those who are unfamiliar, the Mellon American Council for Learned Societies, ACLS has this really wonderful fellowship. It's called the Public Fellowship, and they place recent PhDs in the humanities or humanistic social sciences in jobs in either government or nonprofit positions. And so the one that I applied to was really kind of returning to this environmental nonprofit work I was doing before grad school and expanding upon it. And it was with the Natural Resources Defense Council, the NRDC. The NRDC is one of the bigger environmental nonprofit organizations in the U.S. It started as a small law firm in the 1970s, and they've really expanded quite a lot. They have had major influence for, you know, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. Now it comprises 500 full-time staff. A lot of them are scientists, 
uh, not just lawyers, experts, and all kinds of different things. But I'm pretty sure that I was the only anthropologist there. Um, <laughs> so that was definitely, you know, it was definitely a fish out of water in, in a certain way. And so I was in this position there as an international campaign advocate. And so I was working in both their Latin America and Canada projects. The Latin America work was primarily focused on uh, protecting rivers in Chile and Patagonia. So mostly following up on social movements that were trying to resist the development of large hydroelectric dams in Patagonia. You know, I had done a lot of work on the Argentine side of Patagonia for my research, but really was excited about being able to expand into the Chilean side. And so it was a continuity, both in terms of my environmental you know, advocacy interests, but also in terms of my area expertise, you know, as a scholar. Yeah. And then the Canada work was mostly working closely with indigenous partners, especially the Waswanapi Cree First Nation in what is now Quebec and Ontario, where there's a dispute over industrial logging in their territory. And we were working with them mostly on caribou preservation, which is an at-risk species facing extirpation due to the logging. So it had me kind of just really expanding the scope of my research. This program both broadened the potential yeah. of your own research, expanding it into different areas, while also really engaging your interest in nonprofit advocacy and environmental issues. Was it fortuitous coincidence that the NRDC was one of the places being offered as a fellowship location by the ACLS? Or did you actually scout them yourself and did they give you that brain to, to pursue that opportunity? No, it was really fortuitous and it was just kind of, I mean, I read the description and I wasn't really 100% committed to going with the non-academic route. But when I read the description, I was just like, geez, this is really a great fit for me. It was also a two-year fellowship. So it's a postdoc that is non-academic. It was a nine to five job. That's very different too than other postdocs where you're just in a research position and Maybe you just have to, you know, finish writing articles or a book. Very different nature of that. Um, but it was a two-year position, so it was more appealing to me than another one-year visiting assistant professor job somewhere. So like a lot of us at CUNY, I had a lot of teaching experience already. So mm. it's not like I feel like I needed more of that necessarily. It basically allowed me to embrace a new identity as an applied anthropologist or a public or engaged anthropologist in a much more concrete way that had like actual implications in terms of policy. And I found it to be really gratifying. Do you want to tell me more about your experience in the job on a day-to-day -day basis? What did yeah, that look sure. like? And did you have to learn new skills to get the job done or was it intuitive? It's a tricky thing. So Monday through Friday, you know, very different kind of rhythm than uh, what we're used to as academics. The tricky thing is I was in, it was in both these two different projects doing totally different things, Canada and Latin America. And it was often kind of difficult to balance that. My supervisors, you know, were very conscientious about wanting to make it so that I didn't have two jobs, but rather had two halves of one job. But even though they expressed that, which I appreciated, it was still uh, difficult to balance that and often felt like I had actually kind of two and a half or three jobs because I still wanted to get some research outputs from my dissertation. And, you know, working 
long night nights at the office after my work was done for the advocacy stuff on articles and stuff was difficult and ultimately you know did not necessarily work out you know i had to revise and resubmit on an article that uh was a flagship anthropology journal that i ultimately just wasn't able to make the revisions that i think it required in terms of the the day-to-day it was a really wonderful office environment was it in the office that you were working or did you go out into the field a lot oh yeah It really depends on the particular kind of team that you're on. For Latin America, yeah, I was traveling to Chile. Rather than what anthropologists are used to, which is doing extended field work for months at a time, it would be like two or three weeks before some big summit of these river protectors. Uh-huh. And we, we would decide pretty last minute, you know, all right, Jay, you're going down there, you know, and spend, you know, a quick, basically like a week or 10 days. It was a lot of shorter trips. So I went down to Chile, I think three times in like five or six months. And I went to Mexico also. This was like the week of. They were just like, yeah, you're going down to Baja. And, and it was a very different kind of rhythm, you know? So it was exciting. And yeah. Very different in that sense, but that often made it difficult to balance the priorities too, because the Canada project, there would be opportunities to also, you know, travel to various different events in Canada. But often, you know, I was already kind of on some big trip in Chile or something. And so I was on like weekly or so, you know, video calls with our indigenous partners there. It was a very different rhythm. Um, So in Chile, I became part of this network called La Red por los Rios Libres. So it's the network for free flowing rivers. And it's all these activists all over Chile. Basically, I had to keep up with them. You know, it was like uh, they're they're sending me WhatsApp messages still to this day. And I'm just trying to trying to basically continue to keep up with them and so that I can support whatever is happening in these different uh, disputed rivers. But that was very different from the situation in Canada, where often, you know, there, there were changes in leadership of uh, particular First Nations. And and we would have to sort of um, be very patient and persistent in trying to, you know, keep up the momentum on various campaigns but really make sure that it's something that um, that the leadership of, of these indigenous partners wants to pursue, you know, and it was really them taking the lead. Yeah, each campaign kind of has its own rhythm and its own uh, moments of intensity. You have to be outspoken. I mean, that's that was my job, you know. And NRDC is a, is a major organization that has excellent connections internationally and nationally. You know, if I were in Chile, I would get interviews with these uh, you know major newspapers or radio stations in Chile it was really an amazing opportunity it was also you know a, a challenge to make sure that i was really knowledgeable about a topic enough I had to learn really mm-hmm. fast to be able to talk with some kind of authority on it but also make sure that i'm not stepping on the toes of our local partners and generally, the vast majority of instances I found that our, our partners were just really appreciative because this was a, a kind of new network that was growing of these river protectors that, you know, wanted publicity. And we were able to kind of showcase that. Yeah. The great thing about that is that I was able to basically whenever there were certain moments where I felt as though, um, I don't know, I was uncomfortable with an interaction. Actually, I realized there are all these tools that we have as anthropologists and as social scientists generally that you can apply to those situations. So Mm -hmm. I basically treated any of those instances in a meeting or a summit or doing field work where where something felt uncomfortable as an ethnographic moment. And I would, um, you know, basically 
make a note of it for myself. I wasn't mm -hmm. like taking field notes every day like I like I would in the field, you know, for dissertation. But I tried to kind of, you know, log things like that that were tricky situations and revisit them later. And what I was able to do actually is I've just got a new publication forthcoming in uh, the Journal of Ethnobiology, which is an analysis of reflecting on my experiences doing environmental advocacy for wow. NRDC. I think this is what I, the message I'd like to get across really is that it's exciting, it's challenging to do something that is not in our comfort zone as academics, to work as part of a team rather than just independently doing advocacy or non-academic work. But it's also useful to think about how our tools apply in ways that we don't realize. And also how we are also able to kind of tack back and forth between academia and non-academic work. And I found that actually this made me a far more dynamic and versatile scholar doing this this actual work and so that that's why i was able to basically be eligible for this applied anthropology position and now i'm trying to really have the best of both worlds building that advocacy into a research project i've just got a new little grant that i'm going to go back to chile in the summer to continue wow. doing that work i hope to have a, a contract to keep working for nrdc as a consultant and continuing wow. to do that work in chile and on top of that NRDC has offices all over the place, including, well, not all over the place, but but including in, in Santa Monica, near where I am in, in uh -huh. Southern California. I got to know those folks well, even though they don't work on anything I was doing. And they were able to connect me with local organizations that do environmental justice work here in, in uh, LA and in the Inland Empire. And I've already established a partnership now with this faculty fellowship here at Cal Poly Pomona to turn this course that I'd been teaching in the fall on environment technology and culture into a service learning course where wow. we're going to partner with this center for community action and environmental justice um, wow. working on local responses to air pollution i just saw it as just all these new opportunities that if you do it right in a position like mine it makes a lot of sense and it doesn't have to be a deviation from academia no and i'm in a position where i have a great department you know it's not a publisher parish situation you know, it's mainly teaching centered. And so even though it has a high teaching load, it's often an expectation or, or uh, an understanding that a lot of my colleagues and myself will try to get these sort of contracts to do this more applied work. And if I do that, then I can actually buy out of some of the teaching and also continue doing that work in both advocacy. And if I get publications out of that, then, you know, it's really just a win, win, win. It's still a process. I'm still kind of waiting for certain things to come to fruition. But generally, that's been my path is trying to just build from one thing onto the other and kind of expanding from there. That's very interesting and I think encouraging in, in a vision of how you can build your career from steps that aren't necessarily what would be a linear path towards your goal, but actually enrich each of the goals you have through the detour, as it were. Yeah, I think the trick now for me is trying to think about, okay, uh, how do I relate to my earlier research that I was doing for my dissertation? You know, I'm trying to still get some publications out from that and ideally, uh, you know, a book project. And so balancing that with all this exciting advocacy that I'm still trying to keep up with is something that's a challenge on top of obviously, you know, the teaching. I wanted to go back to the advocacy work as well, yeah. just to ask, are there any skills that you had to learn when you got on the job? And if so, did the NRDC or the ACLS provide you with that support mm -hmm. or was it a sink or swim? So the ACLS generally um, paid for, you know, my, my salary, which went through NRDC's payroll. There were professional development funds available. I think 
about $3,000 worth. Now I didn't use that. They generally encourage you to do that in the second year, you know, once you have a better sense of, you know, your bearings. In addition to ACLS's fellowship, which paid for my salary and gave me those professional development funds, NRDC also is very rigorous in training its own employees in various things. Mm -hmm. So I was trained in Spanish language media communication through the Latin America uh, project. I had um, also from Canada, I went through an indigenous partnership training with the indigenous leadership initiative, um, uh, which is a, a group uh, mainly based in Canada, um, especially Innu guardians working on conservation and forestry. And I also got training in uh, things like Excel, but also Esri for these interactive story maps. Yeah, it's kind of like a blog, but with ArcMap, you know, built into it. So you use ArcGIS and you use ArcMap and make it so that uh, you're telling a, a narrative about a particular topic and doing so in a way that is going to, you know, allow people to click on dots in a map that will give them more information as well as photos and, and videos and other things. Um, Very cool. And so, yeah, so so people can check it out. It's up online, Protecting Rivers in Chilean Patagonia story map that I did a lot of work on. NRDC, also, this is something that's a different cultural thing, I think, between academia and uh, nonprofits or big nonprofits or private firms as well, is they do a lot of retreats. So <laughs> I was a member of the Latin America Project, the Canada Project, the international team, um, you know, the, the program staff. I had retreats for each of those things in addition to an all staff retreat. So I, I went on, you know, five retreats or something like that. Um, <laughs> sometimes I had three in one week. So it was seven days of full retreats. And Sounds there, good. yeah, and there you also have lots of training opportunities and networking. I just want to say also one of, one of the things that I ended up getting uh, most involved in, especially related to the Canada work that I was doing, um, is this... Um, equity initiative. So this was a cross-institutional equity initiative at NRDC, where basically we had these different pilot projects. And really, you know, a lot of the environmental movement has problems with diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, often a lot of environmental NGOs have this reputation of mostly having a perspective that is white and perhaps a little bit um, older generations. And so we had these different pilot projects that were specifically geared toward having a more equitable approach in terms of how we did our work. Mm -hmm. And I sort of took the lead on this supporting indigenous people's sovereignty equity initiative. So having training in settler colonial studies or indigenous politics in the coursework that I did as an anthropologist put me in a really good position to do that. That's where I think my social scientific perspective was probably most useful and appreciated besides all the field-based stuff that I was doing in Chile. Interesting. And then the, the skills that you got out and you were talking about as well, interacting with media or building digital story, story maps, story websites, all of these things sound like they feed into your academic career, your ability Completely. to experiences. When you're back on the academic job market and there's always going to be questions about your approach to diversity, those kinds of things. I had very concrete things to say about the work that I was doing. So yeah, that was helpful, but also, um, you know, academic departments want to know about what kind of service you might contribute. Working on all these various teams and being used to having several meetings in a day, 
I was very well prepared for service duties in academia as well that a lot of people fresh out of PhD program, you know, may, may not have. So there were so many skills actually that really translated, especially having already done a lot of teaching at CUNY. Mm. Um, it's not as though I, I needed that as much. So yeah. it really it complemented everything well, I think, in terms of giving me that, that applied approach, giving me the kind of service oriented perspective and sincerely engaging with things like diversity, equity, and inclusion. I was wondering, is there anything you would do differently in hindsight, looking back or taking the long view of your journey <clears throat> in academia and at the intersections with nonprofit work? Is there anything you do differently or is there anything you wish you knew when you were starting out that would have made that journey easier? Because it sounds like you've approached it in a very savvy way. Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the things I might've done differently is maybe as a grad student, really engaging more in like policy realms, having a better understanding of not just the publishing world of academic journal articles or books, but there are also white papers and policy briefs and reports. But in addition to those more kind of formal gray literature, we call it in academia, which has perhaps a way bigger impact a lot of the time than an mm. academic journal article that only a few other experts will read. There are those things to really familiarize yourself with that is really a different genre. And in addition to those, the more public scholarship type of things, which are the media interviews and the, and the blogging that really are, you know, a different kind of skill that it involves. I had already kind of done that, you know, a bit. I was doing some journalistic reporting in my field work. You know, I wrote a string of articles for The Economist when I was in the field, just because I was kind of well positioned on certain things there. And uh, and I did a couple blogs also. I wrote for NACLA, the North American Congress on Latin America. And I, I wrote for, uh, you know, this anthropology engagement blog on, for environmental anthropologists. So I had been doing a little bit of that, but I think what I didn't really connect was how all those things relate to policy and also how, you know, sometimes it can be much more strategic in advocacy to have certain kinds of pragmatic approaches that will be compelling and persuasive depending on who your audience is. And so there are certain compromises where in academia, it would be very easy to take a more critical or ironic sort of approach to analyzing a topic, when you're doing advocacy, you have to really think about what do your partners actually want in terms of how to advance their cause. Mm -hmm. And maybe that isn't always the most kind of radical, critical grassroots orientation. Maybe they want just a concrete policy reform that's going to be mm -hmm. different. So you have to have, I think, a, a different kind of nuanced look at what are the actual achievable goals and how are ways that you can you can actually kind of win certain campaigns and sometimes that means doing things that i i wouldn't have been um very comfortable with doing previously so for example with the canada project we we had a corporate campaign so this involved actually trying to get all these different companies from the us which are paper purchasers to sign on to letters that would persuade the governments of Quebec or Ontario to have more restrictions on industrial logging in the boreal forest. Basically to say that they're not interested in sourcing their paper products from those places unless they go through certain kinds of reforms that are gonna support our indigenous partners. Those kinds of things mean that I had to establish relationships with private sector actors that, you know, as an academic, you just don't need to involve yourself with those kinds of real world messy details that can have, uh, have a real impact. When it comes to the kind of nuts and bolts of these advocacy campaigns, 
you got to be pragmatic and strategic. And I was lucky enough to to work with some folks that were really good at that. Now, now that's not to say that there are things that I was always comfortable with. And those are the things then, again, that even though I was involved in, in some of that work that I had to basically reflect on and analyze as a kind of ethnographic moment. When I was doing my field research in the Falklands on offshore oil, I didn't always feel like I could you know, express myself. I, I had to be thoughtful about who I was engaging in conversation so that my research would be you know, comprehensive and so that I could, in other words, talk to oil managers and engineers and do that studying up of, of these elites without necessarily, um, yeah, kind of compromising my position. So, so, so it was a very different kind of sort of uh, way of dealing with it and advocacy. I didn't have to, it's not as though I had to hide anything in terms of my, my politics in the same way, um, but I had to engage with different kinds of actors in actually in sincere and candid ways that were just more complicated. I was wondering too, are there any resources or experiences that you would recommend that current GC students could take advantage of at the GC mm. that would prepare themselves better for working in a not-for-profit, for instance? I think if I were to do it again, I probably would have done sort of like a certificate program in GIS or something, you know, as an anthropologist. I think it would have been helpful if I had a really strong grounding in GIS. You know, my colleagues at NRDC did not feel that that was necessary at all. So it's not as though I went there and they thought it was, you know, something I should have had or anything. But I think it would have been useful and I would have been able to really um, use things like these story maps in, in more dynamic ways. Also, I think any kind of preparation that you can do in terms of trying to understand policy and to some extent litigation, what I found really interesting was how a lot of the folks that I worked with, whether they were consultants or full-time staff, a lot of them were lawyers, but they use the law and litigation as one of their tools in a broader tool set for advocacy. And so just like mapping, litigation, um, just understanding that as something that you can use to support a campaign for advocacy, I didn't really understand fully before that what kind of power that can have, you know? So I think generally, I mean, you don't need to go full extent into having some other degree in terms of law or geography or whatever, but at least uh, having some kind of familiarity with how anything you do may relate to some kind of policy framework. And whether that means, you know, supporting it through different kinds of tools like that, or just being able to communicate about it to translate technical information more widely for public audiences is something that I think is, is worth developing early. Yeah. That's such a good point. I think that applies to so many different non-academic careers as well as academic careers to translate specialist knowledge to be able to engage different audiences, whether you're motivating them to take action on a policy stance or for any other range of reasons. It's incredibly useful. That's a great yeah. point. Yeah, exactly. So it's engaging with all these things that are not just part of the debates in the academic literature and engaging them in a way that gives you a sense of fluency that you can talk about it to anybody, not just, you know, to other kinds of wonks, but being able to actually make a compelling case on a policy to an ordinary audience is something that I think is, is definitely something we're trying to understand early on. It's also going to give you a broader impact, even if you want to stay in academia, if you're applying for grants and everything to show that you're relating to actual on the ground things that are happening. That's great, Jay. I mean, that's about all the questions that I cool. had. Is there anything else that comes to mind through this conversation? In advocacy, especially, so much of it is really about working as a team. 
And so I think that is a big change, especially from cultural anthropology. We sort of are, are lone wolves, you know, doing research in our field work. And, um, you know, that may be different if you're, say, in archaeology or some other subfield or a different discipline where you're used to working as a research team. But that's definitely something that is probably the most fundamental is sometimes just taking a backseat, listening, thinking about ways you can contribute that may not be the most glorious, um, but that are kind of day-to-day important things that need to happen. So I found that to be humbling and also gratifying. And that, that I think is just an important skill to develop as well, is just learning how to be a good team member. That's a wrap for this episode of Alumni Allowed. I want to thank Jay for coming on the show to share his experiences with the Mellon ACLS Public Fellowship and his life on the tenure track with our listeners. Remember to stay tuned for more episodes of Alumni Allowed published every two weeks during the fall and spring semesters. Subscribe on iTunes and you'll automatically be notified when new episodes are released. Also check out our Facebook, Twitter, and career planning website at cuny.is slash careerplan for more updates from our office or to make appointments with our career counselors. Thanks for listening and see you next time.